You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined by my lovely and talented friends, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. Hey, how are y'all doing? Good. Hanging in there. How are you guys? Doing good. Doing good. So Carrie, I understand you're on a fitness frenzy right now. (laughs) I am. I finally decided. And I think part of it is I was reading this article about um, kind of in my daily, all right, what's the COVID update? But one of the articles that popped into my newsfeed um, on my my list of uh, news articles, whatever, was how people are now starting to pay more attention to all of the fitness stuff and appearance and all of those types of things. And so Um, so it's very true now that we're actually like emerging and the immediate freak out sensation of COVID has passed. So I, um, am actually starting to exercise again, which normally I really like exercising. I just, for the past year, have kind of not for reasons (laughs) other than just COVID freak out, I think, um, and trying to get a million other things done with taking care of patients in this brave new world. But so anyway, I have started to really watch nutrition very closely and have started to um, get on my, I have a, a spin bike, which is, I I personally really like the Peloton app. Um, I don't have a Peloton bike. I just have a, you know, a, a different version of a spin bike that I really like. And so I've gotten on that for 30 to 45 minutes every day for the past, for the past week has been every single day. Prior to that, I was gone for a week, but you know, before that was doing it really, really regularly, like four or five times a week for the past month. And I'm starting to see results and it's really kind of fun. That's, That's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. That's fabulous. It's a ton of just being super meticulous about nutrition and what I'm eating. And I have my little scale and I weigh out everything. And uh, fortunately, I like to cook and my husband's good at grilling. And so um, despite the fact that he has thrown away my recipes before, which we talked about on a prior podcast, <laughs> really very good at grilling. And, and so I'm making a go of it because I've got, I have a long way to go and I have a feeling this journey is going to be the better part of a year. Well, a race begins one step at a time, Carrie, and it sounds like you're well off into the step. So that's good. That's awesome. You know, I think people don't realize how, you know, you pointed out you're counting calories. People don't realize how an addition of 300 calories a day is the difference between you losing weight, staying the same, or potentially gaining weight. And 300 calories is not a lot. And, you know, I was telling you about the article that I read that people overestimate by a factor of four how much energy they or how many calories they expend doing exercise, and they underestimate by a factor of two how much they actually eat. You know, so like if you exercise for 30 or 45 minutes, you might get to eat like, you know, a half of a candy bar <laughs> and people kind of overestimate how much they really burn. But, you know, I, th- I think it's just good to think of it as getting, becoming more healthy. And I think that's the way you're looking at it too. Yeah. I need to be able to to keep up with all the things that I want to do in life. And yeah, 
help me do that. And it's, it's good for improving mood and general outlook. Oh yeah. Stress relief. It's really good for stress relief. <laughs> Huge. One of the things that I was reading was that when you exercise in the morning, you actually get more beneficial effects throughout the day, not just on metabolism. Like the, when you take people who have the same amount of exercise, but one set does it early and one set does it late. Uh-huh. The people who do it early make better choices throughout the day. Ah. It moves better throughout the day. And so as much as it pains me to set my alarm to get up a little bit earlier, you know, if that helps me get there more efficiently, I'm all for it because I, I am, I'm kind of over it. And I just want to be, you know, Yeah, I think that's great. I just, you know, some people say that if you are in a field or occupation where you have to continually get up really early and stuff that you just, your body circadian rhythm, circadian rhythm, I can't say that circadian rhythm, <laughs> adjust to that. Mine, unfortunately, has not. And I have gone through stages in my life, and I try to exercise regularly, where I've tried to exercise in the morning. I agree with you. I think that would be better. But oh my gosh, I am like a zombie anyway when I get up, much less if I had to get up an extra 45 minutes. I, I don't I don't think I could do it. And, and the times that I did it, it was actually good because I really was like a zombie for like 30 or 45 minutes. And by the time I came out of my zombie sleep, I was exercise was over with. I'd already done it for the day. So it was great when I could do it. But oh gosh, I am just not an early morning person. The endorphins delivered you to a brand new day. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Susan? When do you exercise? Um, Yeah, I'm not really good at that. (laughs) I'm going to be very honest. I, I just, it is not something that I have made as a huge priority. Um, And I should, I know I should. I just, haven't. I'm not a, I'm not a great exerciser. Okay. So for our audience, if you could see Susan, you would like, I'm like totally cringing, but I want to tell you the truth. She is like, she's like very thin and very petite. And, you know, for her to say she doesn't exercise kind of even makes me angry (laughs) because I'm short and I'm of normal body weight. But if I didn't exercise, which I do three times a week, I would be an extra 50 or 70 pounds, if not more. So I have to exercise. But I will also say, and I've mentioned this on previous episodes, I have celiac, which is an absorption disorder. Yeah, well, that's true. And Okay, I, we'll give you that, Susan. I honestly, I because I mean, on, most of my family is overweight. And, and so like, it is definitely like a genetic propensity thing. And I think because I have, I have very well-controlled celiac. So I don't want people to think that I'm like cheating on my celiac and not taking care of myself. I absolutely do. But I also am very meticulous about my diet. Yeah. Because for me, not only do I have celiac, but I also have a number of other food intolerances that make me not feel well. So I am, you know, as much as, you know, y'all are paying attention to your energy expenditure, I I pay so much attention to what's going in that it it probably, you know, the combination of the two kind of balances that out. So, I mean, that makes good sense because you cannot outrun the fork, which is what I do. Uh, I have tried to do for many, many. Sarah, you have so many good witticisms. You can't outrun yeah, I like the fork. that. You can't I love that. outrun the fork. I'm gonna start writing these down. I have like the picture of like the moon and the fork and the spoon. <laughs> the problem is, I I know how to bake, and I'm I've been doing it for so long. I'm really good at like having friends over tonight, and I made a chocolate cake, and I've already balanced everything into my nutrition for the day. I worked out a little extra this morning. I've got everything super meticulous, like sorting out the macros, exactly how much protein, carbs, fat that I'm taking in. And 
you know, allowing for this splurge so that I can keep doing this because yeah. butter is my love language. Um, <laughs> As we've talked about, chocolate's mine. So I'd love to come over to your house and taste some of your chocolate pie that, or cake that you're making. <laughs> oh, it's it's a stellar. It's my Aunt Irene's recipe and it's a fudge chocolate cake. And it's Oh, that are, those are like gooey. Like my last meal, mm. if I was on death row, would be chocolate lava cake. That would be like my whole meal would just be chocolate lava cake. So <laughs> that sounds great, Carrie. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm really excited about tonight, but it means that I have to be very on it and meticulous the rest of the day. Yeah. So we'll see. All right. Well, let's go to our question of the day. Um, so our question is, I understand that there are times during fertility treatment that is advised to avoid intercourse, like after a trigger shot or two weeks following FET. However, does that guidance also apply to sexual activities that don't involve penetration? For example, masturbation without penetration. I know that orgasm can cause the muscles of the uterus to contract. So I want to ensure that you, that it will not negatively affect my IVF treatment. Ladies. So I think the one issue from the male standpoint is ejaculation. And we usually say, you know, if he's going to collect for your IVF cycle, you want to have abstinence between two to five days. So sex any sooner than two days might make his sperm count low. Although honestly, with IVF, it probably doesn't make that big of a difference because, you know, if we get 10 eggs from you, we literally need 10 sperm from him. The five-day rule is more related to motility of the sperm or movement of the sperm. So from that standpoint, you know, you probably want to stay within that two to five day window, no matter, you know, whether it's just ejaculation or it's true intercourse or whatever. As far as orgasm, I think the concern there is just that you worry that if you had already implanted the embryo, that there could be some issues. Like if you just had an implantation like that day or something, that maybe that could cause micro contractions, which could cause an issue, you know, maybe with poor implantation. Honestly, I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. There's no scientific data. I mean, who's going to do that study, you know? So (laughs) nobody really knows, I don't think. So what are your thoughts, Carrie? So with respect to some of the the questions she's asking about masturbation and can you have an orgasm or not, um, there's there's the orgasm issue, which I don't think anybody really truly knows. I do remember that there were studies where they radio labeled embryos, not embryos, but just like put a small radio label tag and did an embryo transfer to see what happened to those embryos. And that's part of how we know that uh, getting up after a transfer right away versus staying bed bound for 24 hours doesn't really make a difference. I don't think that they extended that study to, to sex and to orgasm at all. You know, there's the practical component of I don't want you doing anything that's going to interfere with the healing of your ovaries, particularly right after a retrieval, because those ovaries are, they have been beaten up. I mean, we go in and we poke them to get the eggs out and we don't want anything to bleed and we don't want anything to twist. So that's part of the reason why exercise and, and vigorous sexual activity um, is, is out. You know, that it makes me remember the joke of, you know, well, uh, young lady, how did you get pregnant? She goes, oh, I, I'm not sexually active. I'm like, well, my dear, your pregnancy test is positive. She goes, how could it be? I just lay there. Some of it is the question of like, well, if you're not sexually active, like if you're not bouncing around and, and having a vigorous session, um, does that make a difference? And, and I don't know that we really know about that, like, you know, masturbation, for the most part, I would think after a retrieval would be 
fine. I, I can't think of any reason why it wouldn't be, you know, right around the, the time of transfer in particular. I would say we have people avoid as much as possible just because we don't know. And one of the ways that I counsel my patient is there's a good chance that this is not going to do anything one way or the other. However, your chances of miscarriage are highest in those first couple of weeks before we have an established heartbeat. And having an orgasm or not is really probably not going to change that outcome at all. But I sure do not want you thinking that I had an orgasm, therefore I had a miscarriage, therefore I am bad, it's my fault. Um, it then screws up your ability to have an orgasm by whatever method. No orgasm is worth that guilt. No orgasm is worth that guilt. <laughs> <laughs> or if it is worth that guilt, share your secrets. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the reason why we're so cautious. And that ultimately, no, it's probably not going to do anything. You know, definitely stay away during the time right around transfer because that's that's really not worth that risk at all. Later... No, it probably doesn't make a difference, but um, that guilt is real. And we are part reproductive endocrinologists and we are part psychiatrists and therapists. Mm -hmm. That recommendation is from, is based off of no study that I've ever read, but it's sure based off of experience. Yeah. It amazes me the number of times too, when people come in and have had a miscarriage and they're like, I, I, I rested, I did what I was supposed to, I, you know, and you say, you know, th there's nothing you could have done to control this. And they have such a huge sense of relief because they feel so guilty that something they did probably caused mm -hmm. it. So I, I agree. If nothing else, the benefit is just because of the guilt factor. If something does happen that's bad. Absolutely. Well, let's kind of move on for our topic of today. So our topic that we're going to discuss is something called pregnancy of unknown location. So Carrie... What exactly is a pregnancy of unknown location? Why, why is it a big deal? So this is one of those things where delightfully the acronym tells you a lot about what we're talking about. This is not one of these PGTA or ICSI <laughs> or any of those things. So pregnancy of unknown, unknown location is exactly what it sounds like. It is a pregnancy where we know that there is a pregnancy there. The HCG levels are going up, but we can't pinpoint exactly where it is. And um, as you guys know from listening to us, we are all uh, a bit compulsive about data and when we are monitoring and how we are monitoring. And one of the biggest things that we monitor for safety-wise is making sure that once we have a pregnancy established, that it is in the right place. Because if it is not in the, in the right place, in the uterus, on the, on the endometrium, then we have a problem because the uterus is an organ that is built to take, really take the abuse of pregnancy. It can go from the size of your fist to a, a decent sized watermelon, push a kid out and, and then be ready to ride, you know, not that long afterwards, the rest of the body can't do that. So if we have any concern that a pregnancy is in a tube on an ovary or someplace other than the uterus, we want to know it. So a pregnancy of unknown location is an HCG level that's going up. We've got confirmation of pregnancy, but we cannot yet see it where we need to see it when we expect to see it. And that when's really an important component. So Abby, do you want to talk about the when part of it? Yeah. So there's it's so the time that's most frustrating, I think, for us as clinicians and for patients is from the time you have a positive pregnancy test until about four weeks after your transfer, about six weeks after pregnancy. And so the problem in that window is those hormone levels are going up, but our ultrasound 
is not good enough yet to see where it is. And so particularly if it's not going up appropriately, and, and by that I mean the hormone level should at least double every couple of days. And if it doesn't do that, it starts to make us think that maybe the pregnancy is implanted in the wrong place. And so um, so we kind of watch our patients like hawks. We bring them in every few days until we finally definitively know where it is. Um, because so we, so I think one of the things that always scares me is when we do um, like an embryo transfer or a patient gets pregnant and then they go off on a cruise, which has happened before, <laughs> just a, like a cruise for a couple of weeks. And you don't know if it's going up well or it's not. You know, most of the time, luckily, particularly with IVF patients, most of the time it's a, a good pregnancy in the uterus, but it's, we always have to think about worst case scenario. And so for that reason, we tend to bring patients in, you know, every few days until we kind of know where it is. And so Susan, how do we figure out where it is? So, you know, when we're, I'm going to back up just a little bit. So when we're talking about pregnancy hormone levels, these are the HCG levels that we're keeping an eye on. Okay. And generally what we, we expect is over 48 hours, there should be a rise of at least 60%. In most pregnancies, we see it much, much higher than that. Okay. And we watch those hormone levels rise till at, at whatever point we feel that they truly are going in the right direction. And that can vary from doctor to doctor and practice to practice exactly how many of those HCG levels you have. So at the point that you should be essentially around five, five and a half weeks, okay, pregnant, especially in pregnancies. Now, when we're talking about what we're worried about, we're worried about ectopic pregnancies, pregnancies in the wrong place. And those pregnancies in the wrong place can be in the cervix, in the tube, they can be on the ovary, they can actually be near the bowel, they can be in the uterus, but right at the place where the tube comes comes in, there's all kinds of kind of danger zones that we're, we're trying to avoid. And those can be a, a, a relatively dangerous situation for you. Around five to five and a half weeks on ultrasound, we should be able to see two structures in the uterus. One is called the gestational sac. And that is generally a when you look at the ultrasound, the uterus is kind of a gray color within the inside of it. We should see a black circle and around that black circle, it's usually a little whiter right around there. And then within that black circle, there should be another white circle and that is the yolk sac. When we see those two structures, we know that there is a pregnancy in the uterus. So that's when most of us go, <sighs> and depending on your risk will depend on whether or not you necessarily have an ultrasound at that kind of five and a half week point. And kind of on that note, Abby, what are some things that might increase somebody's risk of having an ectopic pregnancy? So sometimes, like a patient I saw this week, no risk factors at all. So one thing I would say is you can't hang your hat on anything, but things that can increase it is you know, if you have a known history of having some sort of pelvic infection, traditionally we think about gonorrhea and chlamydia, but there's also some just random pelvic infections that can cause you to have um, scar tissue within your tube. Um, other things would include like endometriosis that can cause scar tissue within your tube. And anytime you've had any kind of major surgery and, and really sometimes even minor surgeries, sometimes the first thing in your pelvis to get scar tissue is the end of the fallopian tube. And so, you know, if you ever have seen a picture of an egg and a sperm, 
We know that the egg is really big. It's the largest cell in your body. Sperm is really tiny. And those little suckers can get through some really tiny spaces. (laughs) And so just reminding you back to physiology of pregnancy, when the egg is released, so it's released from the structure called the ovary, it's released into the body cavity. The end of the fallopian tube is almost kind of like a vacuum cleaner and it kind of sweeps over the ovary and it sucks the egg up, which is kind of a miracle in and of itself that the two can find each other. Well, the sperm has to make a track all the way through the female reproductive tract, all the way through the fallopian tube, and it fertilizes the egg at the end of the fallopian tube. So if there's tiny bits of scar tissue within the tube, the sperm can usually get through there. It can fertilize the egg. But then as the egg goes back through the fallopian tube, it can get hung up there. And that's most common thing that we see is an ectopic pregnancy within the tube. Um, There can be ectopics in other places, but that's the most common one. And then one other thing I was thinking about, as I mentioned that, is if you've ever had tubal surgery. So, for example, if you've had a tubal reanastomosis, um, that can increase your chances that there can be some microscopic scar tissue there. And then there's other environmental things, things that you can control yourself, like smoking, that can kind of increase those risks as well. So um, because it it tends to slow down the little hair cells that compel the egg and the sperm um, to go through the fallopian tube. Those are the main ones I can think of. Can you guys think of any others? I think those are kind of the big ones. Um, you know, what, Carrie, what do you think is, so you have somebody who's at five and a half weeks and let's, let's take people out of the IVF section. Okay. Let's, let's talk mainly about people who are either spontaneously getting pregnant or people who got pregnant with super ovulation, IUI, those types of things. So you have somebody who's five and a half weeks pregnant or six, they show up at their six week ultrasound and you don't see something in the uterus that is what we're supposed to be seeing. What, what do you, what, what's going through your brain? What, what do you do at this point? So next thing that I do is I go back and review all the dates and say, okay, when was her last period? When was any intervention that we made done? So this is of course easier in patients who have gone through a clomid letrozole cycle, had a trigger shot and had an insemination because I've got a lot more data there because before I ever start one of those cycles, I've got a negative pregnancy test. So I know for sure that she was negative on X date and that's really helpful. Um, And then just kind of move forward and say, okay, I know that she had her trigger shot on this date and the insemination is this date. So that's kind of the dating that I'm working with. Now, for someone who has a spontaneous pregnancy, it's a lot more challenging because many of our patients are our patients because their periods are totally wonky <laughs> whenever they want, however they want, you know, on a schedule, not on a schedule. And that makes it really difficult to know when ovulation truly occurred because for someone who's got very, very long cycles that are 40 days, 50 days, 60 days, you can have an egg release in there sometime and you will have no idea and she will have no idea when that actually occurred. Um, sometimes people can pinpoint and say, well, you know, my partner was gone. I know we only had sex on these days, but there's still a five-day window where you can have implantation. So we go back and, and I start looking at the information of what do I really know and what am I just guessing? And, and then I start to say, okay, of the levels that I have that are increasing, that are presumably not increasing normally or potentially are increasing normally, at what point can I say, I really should be seeing something? And typically the cutoff with a vaginal ultrasound is when you have an HCG level that is roughly 1500 or higher, we expect to see something on a vaginal ultrasound, at least see something in the uterus. 
If it's somewhere else, we may not see it. But at that point, that's, that is my expectation. So for sure, if I've got someone who's got a high HCG level greater than about 1500, I expect to see something in the uterus. But even that's not foolproof because things like twins. Twins. <laughs> you have a higher HCG level. That's when putting those dates and the times and the blood levels all together really helps. Yeah. And, and much of the name of the game is wait and see of saying, okay, now that we know that there's something wrong, we're going to see you every, every two days or every couple of days for however long it takes to know what's going on. And, and it really wears on patients because it's the uncertainty. It's the not knowing. And, and that actually wears a lot on us too. But um, that's one of the things that patients really get frustrated about. It. Well, why don't you know? Yeah. And I think one important thing to point out too, and I see this as I've gone through my career you can't really hang your hat on anything. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I've had a patient or two that have never had normal doublings and they've gone on to have a healthy pregnancy. I've had people who've had normal doublings and then maybe the pregnancy is at a place where it can grow better, even though it's in a bad place, like the end of the fallopian tube that's really open. Um, I think the important thing is that if if you're going through that right now, if you have a pregnancy of unknown location, just listen to your doctor. And I think your doctor probably is going to want to see you back every few days. And, and while that may be a big inconvenience, just know that they're looking out for you and they're thinking about worst case scenario. And that's that's really what your doctor should be doing because there is no no one thing that you can look at other than maybe seeing a sack in the uterus and finally knowing it's really there that really can help you let your guard down. You just have to keep falling because you may be in the office one day and see nothing. You may be back two days later and boom, all of a sudden we see a sack in the uterus and then we all you know, are kind of relieved. So there is a point that each of us get to that we are like, okay, we are absolutely certain this is not going to develop into a normal pregnancy. We know that this is one of two things, either a miscarriage that isn't kind of following the rules or an ectopic pregnancy. And where that line is, it varies from, from, you know, very specific situation to specific situation. There, there isn't a cut and dry, but there is a point where each of us, and I, I know each of you have that, it's this thing that happens inside of you. You're like, okay, this is where I know this is not normal. And at the point that we know that that this is not going to develop into a baby, what, what do we do? What are some options? So options at that point. Um, there's medical management and there's surgical management. Usually by that point, wait and see is, is off the table <laughs> um, because we have already waited. We have already seen, and we don't like what's happening. And we think of it, and I think you guys would agree. Once we decide that it's abnormal in my mind, it's like a ticking time bomb and you don't want the bomb to explode. So that means Whatever we do, it's going to happen, probably start to happen that day or it's going to happen that day, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so in looking at um, medical management, um, the, there's a medication called methotrexate. And it was originally a chemotherapy agent because what it does is it interferes with the, the folate synthesis, which is required for growth. And that is really targeted in very quickly growing cells, which is what a pregnancy is. Um, and so we give, we typically start off with just a single dose of that, but there's some real specific rules about how you give it. You got to check an HCG level at the beginning, you monitor usually about day four or so, and then you monitor a week later and you're watching it really closely. And people freak out about methotrexate because they think, 
oh my God, you're giving me this chemotherapy agent. And when you look online, Dr. Google is, is not your friend. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Um, when you look online, you're like, oh my God. And we give it differently. We're giving a one-time dose at much lower levels than what you get in chemotherapy. So it's different. Um, but we're watching really closely because we want to stop division of those cells as soon as possible. And so I think the most common protocol is you give the methotrexate, you get a baseline HCG that day, one a couple days later and one a week later. And and you either expect it to start going down immediately or it can raise, rise up just a little bit and then go down. The end goal is to see approximately 15% decrease or more at that one week mark. And that's between that day four and the day seven labs, not the day one and the day seven labs. Yes. Okay. And then the amount of methotrexate that you get is also based on your body weight. So if you are a smaller person, you will get a smaller dose. And if you are a larger person, you'll get a little bit larger dose. It's all based on what we call body surface area. It's a combination of height and weight and all that kind of jazz. So, you know, we, we want to give you as little intervention as possible to get us where we need to be. Now, what are some of the, um, I mean, it, it's a pretty effective agent, um, but what are some of maybe the side effects and things that people should be aware of if they're going to use methotrexate? So one of the things to think about too with methotrexate is it's kind of, um, if you give it, it's not like kind of one and done. You have to be prepared to continue to go back to your doctor's offices. Um, we don't want you to go on your Caribbean vacation right after you take it. We have to really make sure that it goes down. And so that means follow up. It means following it till, you know, it goes down to less less than five. And so, you know, as we see that it starts to drop and we're really comfortable that it, the hormone levels are really dropping, then a lot of times we'll give you more time between visits. But early on, we're all kind of nervous that is this really going to work or is it not? And if it doesn't work, sometimes a week later, you have to get a second injection of that. Um with it, there's side effects. And I think most of the patients that I've talked to don't have really significant side effects. But if you read online, you know, again, they're talking more about people that are using it for chemotherapy. They talk about hair loss and mouth ulcers and all these things. Honestly, I don't know that I've really had anybody ever complain of those things. And I don't know about you guys, but generally those are things that I think are really limited in our patients. I think the most common side effects I hear are the ones that happen kind of in the first 24 to 48 hours. People feel kind of icky, like they may have a little nausea, a little pain, cramping. Now, of course, severe pain or cramping, you need to let your doctor know absolutely emergently about, um, because that could be a ectopic pregnancy rupturing, but a little mild pain and cramping is, is relatively common. Um, I think the two of the big things that we have to remember about methotrexate is one, you do have to have some sort of dietary modification for it to work. Um, so because it is a folate antagonist, we don't want you taking your prenatal vitamins, that stuff that contains the high amounts of folic acid, um, because that'll counteract it. But another thing to realize is, um, at least in the good old American diet, we actually have folic acid fortified in a lot of our foods. And there's a lot of foods that naturally have a lot of folic acid that we now regularly eat. And so um, I very much encourage my patients that when they're eating, get on their phone, Google their foods and try to stick to things that have lower folic acid levels. Honestly, it's the only time your doctor's ever going to say you can eat like crap because that's kind of what's going to happen. 
Um, but I found that since I've been doing that for a while, I was giving methotrexate in it. I was having to give repeat injections all the time. And then I realized I started really paying attention to kind of diets. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we're, we're, we're helping ourselves in preventing neural tube defects. But when we're talking about the efficacy of the folic acid, that really can have a big impact. The other thing to be aware of is that if we give the methotrexate, we aren't going to want you to get pregnant for at least three months. Okay. So in, in some, in some situations, that's, that's almost a bigger, bigger deal than, you know, kind of not feeling good about methotrexate and things like that, that people are like, oh my goodness, three months, I'm, I'm going to have to wait. And the reason is, is because obviously, like we said, this medicine stops rapidly dividing cells. And if you got pregnant sooner than that period, we might actually hurt that future pregnancy. So that's why we want to make sure all of that's out of your system. Yeah, and there's definitely contraindications to methotrexate. Not everybody is a candidate for methotrexate. And the one that comes to mind, that pops into mind most readily is if you show up and you're having pain, I don't care what your HCG level is or what your ultrasound shows, we need to do surgery. And, and you know, nobody, we don't want to do surgery needlessly on patients. And at times, you know, that even means that maybe we operate on somebody who actually ends up having a pregnancy in the uterus. But if a patient's having pain when they show up in the office, you know, as a physician, you always have to think worst case scenario. And I don't think anyone would feel like we faulted them if we look in and just really confirm that everything's okay and that there's not an ectopic pregnancy. So pain is definitely one that we would, no matter what, no matter what the HCG says or the ultrasound says, we would look in and do surgery and not treat you with methotrexate at that point. And kind of a segue into, as you mentioned, surgery. So if somebody's either not a candidate for methotrexate or you and your doctor decide maybe methotrexate isn't the best option, when, when we talk about surgery, there's kind of two parts of the surgery that we're thinking about, like evaluation of the uterus and evaluation of the belly. Carrie, can you kind of talk about how, how those things kind of come together when we're talking about surgery and what surgery do you actually need to have first? Yeah. And And a lot of this is going to depend on what the story is, because if we have levels that are, um, you know, that are doubling, that are high, that are looking, looking like the numbers are normal, but we're not seeing anything in the uterus. At that point, we want to make sure, okay, we don't want to jeopardize a, a normal, healthy pregnancy. And so at that point, we're talking more about a laparoscopy, putting a camera in, taking a look at the tubes and seeing, is there anything that's obviously growing where it really should not be growing? So there's that component of it. And then there's the other component of it, which is looking in the uterus. So for example, if I've got levels that are clearly abnormal, like have no, no chance whatsoever of being a normal pregnancy, then at that point, in order to avoid the laparoscopy, one option we have is to do a DNC where you clear out the uterus because you know there's nothing normal in there anyway. And you see, okay, is there any pregnancy tissue in there? If there is, then we can all rest assured, okay, this was a miscarriage. We are now done with it. We're going to watch levels, make sure they go down to zero. If there is no pregnancy tissue in the uterus after you clear it out and those levels are still going up, that is a clear sign. We have a problem. This pregnancy is growing in a place where it should not be. And we need to either consider uh, doing methotrexate if those levels are appropriate, or going back and doing a lot laparoscopy to to pull something out. And sometimes we can do those um, concurrently. It kind of depends on what your operative setup is, but um, but there's a couple of different options there. And we tend to be very cautious before we disturb anything in the uterus because 
everybody's goal here is happy, healthy baby. Um, and nobody wants to go in and find out that they have disrupted a totally normal pregnancy that is very, very desired. Um, but there are some situations where it makes good sense of, okay, we can avoid a laparoscopy, which is a, a bigger surgery, a little bit more recovery time um, by just doing a DNC in the uterus to examine that tissue and then make decisions based off of that. Absolutely. So I think we've talked a lot about, you know, the process and what's involved in these pregnancies of unknown locations. I think we, um, we have more of these nowadays because our testing is getting better and better and we're catching pregnancies earlier and earlier. And so I think it's just, it was, it was a great topic for us to discuss today. Yeah. And, and know that your REI is not going to do anything that's going to potentially disturb a normal pregnancy. So if they're suggesting something that is interventional, it means they're worried. And, and these are the type of things that keep us awake at night. Amen. That is exactly right. Literally awake at night. We really do lay there and stress about y'all. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like that. There is nothing more disheartening than, oh crap, it's 2 a.m. I wonder how Ms. Smith is doing. Is she okay? Yeah. Can I call her now? It's 2 a.m. I probably shouldn't, but I'm or sometimes you sort of think it's like a roller coaster that you know, you kind of know in your heart it's not a normal pregnancy and it starts to go up and it starts to slow down and then it starts to plateau where it doesn't really go up or down and, and you you keep thinking it's going to go down and then the next level it goes up. You know, those are the work to me. That's the worst case scenario because it's like you just know in your heart it's not going to be normal, but you can't really step in quite yet and intervene. So that keeps me awake at night. We're not as emotionally involved, but we are definitely emotionally involved in each of your pregnancies. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and we really do lay awake at night or my, my favorite is I'll be driving. My staff always are driving, go crazy whenever I'm driving. Cause I'm driving and I'll be calling. I'm like, have we checked on so-and-so what's going on with, you know, we, yeah. I, I, I say that I'm a, I'm a professional worrier and you don't have to worry quite as much because I'm, I'm doing a lot of it for you. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> Very true. So on that note, to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitycenterdocs.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit any specific questions you have about infertility. All questions are answered anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment. And don't hold back. The more involved, the more embarrassing, the more detailed, all of the things, the better. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.